Thanks very much, Alan. Shortly, we're going to read perhaps the most horrifying narrative in the whole Bible. These things really happened. We're going to read of the attempted gang rape of a man, and then there is gang rape of a woman to the point that she is left to die. There is then dismemberment of her body. This is followed by civil war, mass murder, and the mass abduction of lots more young women who are forced into marriage. All of this is done to preserve the supposed respectability of people who should know a lot better. It is not nice reading. Why do I flag all this up at the start? Well, a couple of reasons. Firstly, to say that as we read this passage, the Bible takes these things seriously. God takes these things seriously. The Bible is real about the horrors that happen in this broken world. It doesn't gloss over them. Rather, as God's word, it reveals to us the root causes of such evil. And it shows to us a God who can and does do something about such evil, bringing justice, mercy, and grace. God wants to draw near to those who have been victims of such things. And he offers new life even to the perpetrators of such things who truly repent and believe without excusing any sin. So firstly, to say we can trust the Bible in terms of how it handles these things. We can hear the Bible on these things. At the same time, I just want to say that some parts of the Bible are really painful for some of us to hear during some seasons of our lives. And in a group our size, it's, it's not impossible that some of us have been affected by similar evil that we're going to read about. So for that reason, I, I wanted to highlight that we'll be covering these things this evening as we look at the end of Judges. Uh, just to say you're very welcome to chat to, to me or any of the staff or pastoral team afterwards about anything this passage raises. If you're not sure who to talk to, ask John or myself and we'll, we'll point you to somebody appropriate. And if it is just really impossible for you to, to hear these things at this time, I, I do understand that. If you'd really prefer to, to listen again to this message on audio another time, uh, there'll be a bit of space now when we pray and during a song later uh, to withdraw and do that if you really feel you need to. Let's come to God in prayer now. Let's pray. Father, we do indeed thank you for your word as Alan prayed, and Lord, we pray that it would be life to us today. Thank you that your word is true, uh, that you really show us what this world in rebellion against you is really like. But Lord, thank you that you are wonderfully gracious and kind and you speak to us. You know where each of us are in our lives. You know all that we have committed. You know all that has been committed against us. Uh, Lord, as we read these words now, may it be uh, with hearts that want to trust you and know what you would have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. We're going to read Judges chapter 19. Now, that's page 262 in the Church Bibles. Uh, later, Sarah's going to read the rest of this account for us, but we're just going to read chapter 19 now. Page 262, Judges 19. In those days, Israel had no king. Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. But she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem, Judah. After she had been there four months, her husband went to her to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. She took him into her parents' home, and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the woman's father, prevailed on him to stay, so he remained with him three days, eating and drinking and sleeping there. On the fourth day, they got up early, and he prepared to leave. But the woman's father said to his son-in-law, Refresh yourself with something to eat, then you can go. So the two of them sat down to eat and drink together. Afterward, the woman's father said, Please stay tonight and enjoy yourself. And when the man got up to go, his father-in-law persuaded him, so he stayed there that night. On the morning of the fifth day, when he rose to go, the woman's father said, Refresh yourself, wait till afternoon. So the two of them ate together. 
Then when the man with his concubine and his servant got up to leave, his father-in-law, the woman's father, said, Now look, it's almost evening. Spend the day here, the night here. The day is nearly over. Stay and enjoy yourself. Early tomorrow morning you can get up and be on your way home. But unwilling to stay another night, the man left and went towards Jebus, that is Jerusalem, with his two saddled donkeys and his concubine. When they were near Jebus and the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, Come, let's stop at this city of the Jebusites and spend the night. His master replied, No, we won't go into any city whose people are not Israelites. We will go on to Gibeah. He added, Come, let's try reach Gibeah or Ramah and spend the night in one of these places. So they went on and the sun set as they neared Gibeah in Benjamin. There they stopped to spend the night. They went and sat in the city square, but no one took them in for the night. That evening, an old man from the hill country of Ephraim, who was living in Gibeah, the inhabitants of the place were Benjaminites, came in from his work in the fields. When he looked and saw the traveler in the city square, the old man asked, Where are you going? Where did you come from? He answered, We are on our way from Bethlehem in Judah to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim where I live. I have been to Bethlehem in Judah, and now I am going to the house of the Lord. No one has taken me in for the night. We have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for ourselves, your servants, me, the woman, and the young man with us. We don't need anything. You are welcome at my house, the old man said. Let me supply whatever you need, only don't spend the night in the square. So he took him into his house and fed his donkeys. After they had washed their feet, they had something to eat and drink. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, Bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, No, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. The men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them. And they raped her and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn they let her go. At daybreak the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, There lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house, with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. And the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine, limb by limb, into twelve parts, and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it was saying to one another, Such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something. So speak up. So the next part of the reading is on page 264, and it's from Judges 20, just after the passage that Andrew read. Then all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and from the land of Gilead, came together as one, and assembled before the Lord in Mizpah. The leaders of all the people of the tribes of Israel took their places in the assembly of God's people, 400,000 men armed with swords. The Benjaminites heard, heard that the Israelites had gone up to Mizpah. Then the Israelites said, Tell us how this awful thing happened. So the Levite, the husband of the murdered woman, said, I and my concubine came to Gibeah in Benjamin to spend the night. During the night, the men of Gibeah came after me and surrounded the house, intending to kill me. They raped my concubine, and she died. I took my concubine, cut her into pieces, and sent one piece to each region of Israel's inheritance, because they committed this lewd and outrageous act in Israel. 
Now, all you Israelites, speak up and tell me what you have decided to do. All the men rose up together as one, saying, None of us will go home. No, not one of us will return to his house. But now this is what we'll do to Gibeah. We'll go up against it in the order decided by casting lots. We'll take ten men out of every hundred from all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred men from a thousand, and a thousand from ten thousand, to get provisions for the army. Then, when the army arrives at Gibeah in Benjamin, it can give them what they deserve for this outrageous act done in Israel. So, all the Israelites got together and united as one against the city. The tribes of Israel sent messengers throughout the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What about this awful crime that was committed among you? Now turn those wicked men of Gibeah over to us, so that we may put them to death and purge the evil from Israel. But the Benjaminites would not listen to their fellow Israelites. From their towns they came together at Gibeah to fight against the Israelites. At once the Benjaminites mobilized 26,000 swordsmen from their towns, in addition to 700 able young men from those living in Gibeah. Among all these soldiers... There were 700 select troops who were left-handed, each of whom could sling a stone at a hare and not miss. Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 swordsmen, all of them fit for battle. The Israelites went up to Bethel and inquired of God. They said, Who of us is to go up first to fight against the Benjaminites? The Lord replied, Judah shall go first. The next morning, the Israelites got up and pitched camp near Gibeah. The Israelites went out to fight the Benjaminites and took up battle positions against them at Gibeah. The Benjaminites came out of Gibeah and cut down 22,000 Israelites on the battlefield that day. But the Israelites encouraged one another and again took up their positions where they had stationed themselves the first day. The Israelites went up and wept before the Lord until evening, and they inquired of the Lord. They said, Shall we go up again to fight against the Benjaminites, our fellow Israelites? The Lord answered, Go up against them. Then the Israelites drew near to Benjamin the second day. This time, when the Benjaminites came out from Gibeah to oppose them, They cut down another 18,000 Israelites, all of them armed with swords. Then all the Israelites, the whole army, went up to Bethel, and there they sat, weeping before the Lord. They fasted that day until evening and presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings to the Lord. And the Israelites inquired of the Lord. In those days, the Ark of the Covenant of God was there with Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, ministering before it. They asked, Shall we go up again to fight against the Benjaminites, our fellow Israelites, or not? The Lord responded, Go, for tomorrow I will give them into your hands. Then Israel set an ambush around Gibeah. They went up against the Benjaminites on the third day, and took up positions against Gibeah as they had done before. The Benjaminites came out to meet them and were drawn away from the city. They began to inflict casualties on the Israelites as before, so that about 30 men fell in the open field and on the roads, the one leading to Bethel and the other to Gibeah. While the Benjaminites were saying, we are defeating them as before, the Israelites were saying, Let's retreat and draw them away from the city to the roads. All the men of Israel moved from their places and took up positions at Baal Tamar, and the Israelite ambush charged out of its place on the west of Gibeah. Then 10,000 of Israel's able young men made a frontal attack on Gibeah. The fighting was so heavy that the Benjaminites did not realize how near disaster was. 
the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and on that day the Israelites struck down 25,100 Benjaminites, all armed with swords. Then the Benjaminites saw that they were beaten. Now the men of Israel had given way before Benjamin because they relied on the ambush they had set near Gebeah. Those who had been in ambush made a sudden dash into Gebeah, spread out and put the whole city to the sword. The Israelites had arranged with the ambush that they should send up a great cloud of smoke from the city and then the Israelites would counter-attack. The Benjaminites had begun to inflict casualties on the Israelites, about 30, and they said, we are defeating them, as in the first battle. But when the column of smoke began to rise from the city, the Benjaminites turned and saw the whole city go up in smoke. Then the Israelites counterattacked, and the Benjaminites were terrified because they realized that disaster had come on them. So they fled before the Israelites in the direction of the wilderness, but they could not escape the battle. And the Israelites who came out of the towns cut them down there. They surrounded the Benjaminites, chased them, and easily overran them in the vicinity of Gibeah on the east. 18,000 Benjaminites fell, all of them valiant fighters. As they turned and fled towards the wilderness, To the rock of Rimmon, the Israelites cut down 5,000 men along the roads. They kept pressing after the Benjaminites as far as Giddim and struck down 2,000 more. On that day, 25,000 Benjaminite swordsmen fell, all of them valiant fighters. But 600 of them turned and fled into the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon, where they stayed for four months. The men of Israel went back to Benjamin and put all the towns to the sword, including the animals and everything else they found. All the towns they came across, they set on fire. The men of Israel had taken an oath at Mizpah. Not one of us will give his daughter in marriage to a Benjamite. The people went to Bethel, where they sat before God until evening raising their voices and weeping bitterly. Lord, God of Israel, they cried, why has this happened to Israel? Why should one tribe be missing from Israel today? Early the next day, the people built an altar and presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Israelites asked, who from all the tribes of Israel has failed to assemble before the Lord? For they had taken a solemn oath that anyone who failed to assemble before the Lord at Mizpah was to be put to death. Now the Israelites grieved for the tribe of Benjamin, their fellow Israelites. Today one tribe is cut off from Israel, they said. How can we provide wives for those who are left, since we have taken an oath by the Lord not to give them any of our daughters in marriage? Then they asked, Which one of the tribes of Israel failed to assemble before the Lord at Mizpah? They discovered that no one from Jabesh Gilead had come to the camp for the assembly. For when they counted the people, they found that none of the people of Jabesh Gilead were there. So the assembly sent 12,000 fighting men with instructions to go to Jabesh Gilead and put to the sword those living there, including the women and children. This is what you are to do, they said. Kill every man and every woman who is not a virgin. They found among the people living in Jabesh Gilead 400 young women who had never slept with a man, and they took them to the camp at Shiloh in Canaan. Then the whole assembly sent an offer of peace to the Benjaminites at the Rock of Rimmon. So the Benjaminites returned at that time and were given the women of Jabesh Gilead, who had been spared. But there were not enough for all of them. The people grieved for Benjamin, because the Lord had made a gap in the tribes of Israel. And the elders of the assembly said, With the women of Benjamin destroyed, how shall we provide wives for the men who are left? 
The Benjaminite survivors must have heirs, they said, so that a tribe of Israel will not be wiped out. We can't give them our daughters as wives, since we Israelites have taken this oath. Cursed be anyone who gives a wife to a Benjaminite. But look, there is the annual festival of the Lord in Shiloh, which lies north of Bethel, east of the road that goes from Bethel to Shechem, and south of Lebanon. So they instructed the Benjaminites, saying, Go and hide in the vineyards and watch. When the young women of Shiloh come out to join in the dancing, rush from the vineyards, and each of you seize one of them to be your wife. Then return to the land of Benjamin. When their fathers or brothers complain to us, we will say to them, Do us the favour of helping them, because we did not get wise for them during the war. You will not be guilty of breaking your oath, because you did not give your, da- you did not give your daughters to them. So that is what the Benjaminites did. While the young women were dancing, each man caught one and carried her off to be his wife. Then they returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and settled in them. At that time, the Israelites left that place and went home to their tribes and clans, each to his own inheritance. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Thank you very much, Sarah. Um, If Daniel Gomez was up here, he'd say, now is the time to stand up and stretch your legs if you feel you need to, uh, and um, just get a bit of blood pumping around. If you want to do that for a second, please do. Um, You've been sat down a fair bit, and we'll continue to do so. Uh, Or if you need a wander later, that's fine too. Some of you might remember the news story back in 2008 of an Austrian man by the name of Joseph Fritzl. He was arrested in the quiet provincial town of Amstetten. His crimes included the abduction and underground imprisonment of his own daughter, which he did in 1984, and the sexual abuse of her for the next 24 years. He kept her in his cellar all that time. He fathered seven of her children, one of whom died in the cellar due to neglect. Fritzl performed his own cremation. He lied for years about the children that kept appearing. He refused to let his captives even see sunlight. And all of this while above ground on the face of it, living a normal, quiet life in a friendly town. When all was revealed, the people of Austria and the media of Austria were quick to express shock and dismay at all these goings-on. One of the newspapers had the headline, How Can It Happen Here? Another big journalist for the main paper in Austria wrote these words. After this case, it will be impossible to carry on with business as usual. An entire nation must ask itself, what has gone fundamentally wrong? As we conclude our series in the book of Judges, we see another entire nation, God's nation, that needs to ask itself, what has gone fundamentally wrong? Because the account of evil and depravity that we've just read did not take place in a pagan, godless town. This happened in God's town. That's the shocking thing that the writer wants us to understand as we reflect on these things. And as we do, we see three big themes emerging. Firstly, we see the total sinfulness of God's people, the total sinfulness of God's people. Chapter 19, verse 1, in those days Israel had no king. So to close out this book, we hear the judges' theme tune one more time. It's here in 19, verse 1, in those days Israel had no king. And then it's right at the end in the last verse Sarah read there, in those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And those two statements, they surround our passage, basically making the point that in between them, everything that's going on, all this account, is an account of people living with themselves as king instead of living with God as king. They are deciding for themselves what is right and what is wrong. And where does that get them? Well, it gets them to these three chapters. First up, there's the Levites, chapter 19, verse 1. 
Uh, in fact, the headings in our Bible, this is a, an immediate red flag here, right here from the start. A Levite and his concubine. It's like saying a priest and his bid on the side. A pastor and his sex slave. The Levite, who was supposed to be set apart as holy, has instead been completely, utterly absorbed into the pagan culture around him. In particular, in his view of women. And it's not just him either. The, the woman's father isn't much better. Uh, in fact, hardly any of the characters are, are actually given a name in this account here, which is quite interesting. It's as if they, they represent all of their type in Israel by the time of the end of Judges. So now by the end of Judges, this is, this is what God's people were like. This is how Levites lived. This is how fathers thought. This is how women were treated. And so there's this funny, awkward opening scene where the woman's dad doesn't want the, the daughter and the Levite to leave, at least probably until he's sure that the man thinks he's been a generous host, and to make sure that he's actually going to take the woman back with him as well, and he's not just there for a visit. Most of the characters are very self-interested in this story. And eventually, verse 10, they do set off. They start their journey towards evening, and they quickly find themselves needing somewhere to stay. The Levite servants suggest they stop in the city of the Jebusites. They're right there. They could stop there. But no, the Levite's not having any of that. So he replies in verse 12, No, we won't go to any city whose people are not Israelites. We will go on to Gibeah. In other words, we don't want to stay in any old dodgy town full of pagans. Who knows what could happen to us there? Dear, oh dear. If only they knew what awaited them in the supposed safe haven of Gibeah in Israel, the home of God's people. Verse 15, their suspicions should be, have been aroused when nobody takes them in for the night. There's no hospitality here. Eventually, an old man comes in and welcomes them in, but with the rather chilling words in verse 20, whatever you do, don't spend the night in the square. And so, as we've read, the night of terror unfolds. What goes on next is shocking to the core. The old man, in seeking to protect his house guest from the, the gang of rapists, offers up the two women instead. So this man uh, and the Levite and, and, and the woman's father, they seem to have absorbed just this view of women that the culture around them has been uh, living out and proclaiming. That women were simply Property, less valuable than men, more expendable than men. By the way, this is not the view of Israel's God. From the beginning, God made humanity, male and female, in his image, both equally valuable in his sight. And it's not just the old man who treats this woman horrendously. So look at verse 25. The, it's the Levite in the end who takes his concubine and sets her outside to them. And they raped her and abused her through the night. And at dawn they let her go. This really happened. We, we feel sickened and upset by this. And we should feel sickened and upset by it. And it's as if the writer wants to press pause here and take a bit of a snapshot of life in Israel, life in God's community, to prompt us as readers to say, does this remind you of anything? Maybe to prompt the Israelites who first read Judges to say, does this remind you of anything? I think for them it would, because Judges chapter 19 looks a lot like Genesis chapter 19. You don't have to turn that up now, but Israelites who knew their history would have been well-versed in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom was the great Old Testament example of rebellion against God that rightly brought on the just judgment of God. And the similarities, if you look at it later, between the two episodes, Genesis 19, Judges 19, are striking, right down to the, the banging on the door and the cries of, bring out your guest for us. You see the point here. Here are the people of God in the book of Judges. They've been given God's promises through Abraham and Moses. They've had the law and the prophets, the tabernacle. God's taken them out of Egypt with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand. They've had all these stream of mini rescuers called Judges in recent days. 
and yet they're, they're just as bad as the, the wicked nations around them. They're no better. They've become like Sodom in their rebellion against God, doing what is right in their own eyes. And so we're shocked at this. We are sick at the evil. We are weeping with the concubine. Here we truly see the depth of sin against God. But I think we need to notice not just the the depth of sin on display here, but also the, the breadth of sin in this chapter to see what it really means for us today. So we might look at the men of Gibeah and say, well, it's obvious they're sinners Their sin was so sick and awful that uh, we all see it and we're quite clearly horrified by it. But don't gloss over the sin of the men inside the house. The host, as we've seen, is guilty of sexist double standards to the point where he will offer up women and not his male house guest. And the Levite himself, he's arguably the most dangerous character in this whole mess. He doesn't bat an eyelid as his concubine is abused all night outside his bedroom window. I wonder, did he sleep well? And then verse 27, the next morning, he gets up. And rather than inquire as to how she's doing, he simply makes his own preparations to move on, spots her half dead, and says, get up, let's go. I think this man treated his donkey better than the the woman he was meant to be taking care of. And then when they get home, we're told, verse 29, rather matter of fact, that he cuts up the body of his concubine limb by limb, sends a piece into all the areas of Israel. How can he do this? Why does he do this? He obviously didn't care about the woman. But he's, he's got a bit of an agenda here. He wants... Israel to know that the men of Gibeah have, through their actions, have deprived him of something. They've taken away some of his property. That's how he views the woman. He wants it to be known that he's had something hard done by to him. And of course, everyone concludes, verse 30, that such a thing has never been seen or done in Israel. And that statement is deeply ironic because I think the narrator wants us to know that it's not just the Gibeonites' actions that are horrible, but the Levites too. There's sin on all sides. The Levite's very good at writing his own propaganda. Did you notice that when we get into chapter 20? Um, Verse 5, this is the severely edited highlights of what actually happened As if the Levite's sort of saying, poor me, the Levite, this is what was done to me and and my poor concubine. It was the men of Gibeah that committed this lewd and outrageous act. He conveniently fails to mention how he gladly gave up the woman rather than fighting for her. And so this man, a a religious leader in Israel, is lost. He's, he's, He's totally sinful. He's lost in his sin, however respectable a spin he tries to put on it. And not only this passage, but the whole Bible is clear in its diagnosis of the human condition. It's clear that there are many and varied ways to rebel against the creator of the universe, to sin against God and to invite his righteous judgment. You can do that in an obviously sick and debauched way that most people would see as wrong, like the men of Gibeah. Or you can also do it just as well, in a way that looks morally good and respectable and and even religious. In both cases, we see double standards everywhere. I think all of us, like the Levite, are rather good at editing our own publicity, our own public image. We all like to tell a better story of ourselves than the whole truth would reveal. In the New Testament book of Romans, the Apostle Paul begins his explanation of the good news about Jesus by diagnosing this very problem of sin. And so in chapter 1 of Romans, he shows how the obviously wicked pagan people are lost in their sin. Yes, that's true. But then in chapters 2 and 3, he shows how even moral, good, religious people, people who had a history with the God of the Bible, are also by nature lost in sin. 
And so he finishes his introduction to the church in Rome by saying this, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. We all do what's right in our own eyes and fail to do what's right in God's eyes. I wonder where in particular in life that, that could be true of you. Where do you and where do I do things that are just right in our own eyes? We so easily, like the characters in this story, put our life into to different compartments, neat compartments. I think we're sometimes more in danger of this if we're churchgoers. We, we have our standards for some areas of life and we have our lower standards for other areas. We wouldn't dare dream of carrying out uh, the things that the men of Gibeah did or Joseph Fritzl did. But we might happily gossip about people, lie about them, spin the truth to make us look better than we are. We might be so comfortable in glossing over sinful thoughts that we have and, and feeding them, entertaining them, or just cutting corners when we know nobody's looking. This episode in Judges challenges us, first of all, to see not just the depth, but the, the breadth of our own sinfulness, to see our hearts and our motivations as they truly are before God, and to mourn over our sin. There is none righteous, not even one. The total sinfulness of God's people. Secondly, we also notice the gracious reality of God's presence, the gracious reality of God's presence. And so as these different parts of Israel receive a part of the woman in the post, they are shocked. And it spurs them on to this wonderful show of great unity. So chapter 20, verse 1, Then all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, that's like for us saying from John O'Groats to Land's End, from right at the top to right at the very bottom, all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and from the land of Gilead, came together as one and assembled before the Lord at Mizpah. Cast your mind back with me a minute to the start of the book of Judges, the start of this series. The setting was one where Israel were meant to be showing a strong, united front against the Canaanites, working together to drive out the wicked nations around them and claim their inheritance. And here at the end of the book, they're finally showing this wonderful togetherness and unity required for such a mission. But who are they out to get? Who are they targeting? Their own people. The Benjaminites. So, verse 8 of chapter 20, they rise up together as one. They were united as one against the city, verse 11 says. They say to them in verse 13, turn over your wicked men of Gibeah so we can purge them. But even the Benjaminites by now have their weird own brand of loyalty going on. They're, they're putting their people above their God. They close ranks. They, they refuse to listen to those outside their tribe that are saying, you know those people that you've got really friendly with in Gibeah? There might be something seriously wrong with the way they're conducting life. They're not having any of it. They're saying, no, these are our people. See this destructive building of sin, layer upon layer upon layer. So the, the lack of honesty from the Levites. Now it's like idolatry for the Benjaminites. They'd rather stick with sinners than stick with God. Who are you to say that about us? And then it quickly ramps up to just full-blown civil war. And so the battle kicks off, verse 20. It's a messy battle. It's hard to work out what's going on in places. There's some... Um, uh, the Benjaminites have their left-handed slingers. They seem to be on top. But then Israel set up this ambush, and they kind of lure the Benjaminites out. They chase them around the back. They, they burn the place down. They slaughter the men until there's only 600 of them left. And so in a messy world of battles, infighting, tragic loyalties, what on earth is God doing? Why is this in the Bible? What, what's God doing? Because it's clear so far the people have not been listening to God, they've preferred to just listen to the dubious words of the Levite and take that as gospel truth. In the midst of the battle, Israel does start to inquire of God as to what they should be doing. But even that's pretty tragic if we read it closely. Again, back to the opening of Judges, where the plan was to conquer the land completely. 
Right at the start, chapter 1, verse 1, the people asked the Lord, who is to go up first and fight against the Canaanites? And the Lord replies, Judah shall go first. Yet here at the end of the book, see how far the nation has fallen. The same question is asked of the Lord, but not about the Canaanites. Verse 18, they say to God effectively, which of us should go first in fighting against our brothers from Benjamin in this civil war that we found ourselves in? What reply can the Lord give? Judah, off you go. The people's failure to conquer Canaan, to walk faithfully with God, has led to civil war, brother killing brother. Things improve slightly, verse 26, in the way they inquire of the Lord there. There's a bit more humility, although that's probably only because their plans have gone badly wrong, so they think maybe they should ask God now. And yet, throughout all this, the Lord keeps just graciously responding to them and responding and and working out his purposes. We're told in verse 28 that it's the Lord who's the one who will give the Benjaminites into the hands of Israel. Further down, verse 35 there, we read that it was the Lord who defeated Benjamin before Israel. But in many ways, the greatest thing in this chapter is that, that God is actually there at all. That he hasn't just abandoned his awful, messed up, rebellious, wicked people. They have long since abandoned him. They're running around doing what's right in their own eyes with all their double standards and sin and civil war. And God in his grace has not left them. He's still with them. Look at that that little sidebar in brackets in verse 27. In those days, the ark of the covenant of God was there with Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, ministering before it. Wow, God is still there in all his goodness and grace, dwelling in the midst of a rebellious people who have turned their backs on him, even after he has done great things for them. The Lord God specializes in meeting sinners in their sin. His grace is such that he's able to turn around the lives of rebels even while they're in the process of rebelling hard against him. How we really need a God like that. A God who will come and meet you and me wherever we are, however great the stench of our sin is, and will stoop down and offer us grace. Do you ever think that God won't want anything to do with you because of what you have done? Or because of your previous lifestyle, because of your your ongoing sin? Do you fall into thinking that in order to to approach God, that um, we have to, um, in order to relate to him and know him and pray to him, we've somehow got to have been reasonably good in order to, to qualify for those privileges, at least maybe in the last few days? And the truth is that God isn't waiting for you with a big stick longing to make you feel miserable. If you're conscious of falling short of his glory, turning your back on him, then his solution is not, please try harder. His solution is not based on you turning your life around. But rather, he comes to meet you in your sin. He wants to make the fullness of his grace available to all who will confess their sin to him and trust in him for forgiveness. And the way he does all this is by showing us what we desperately need, by graciously providing that very thing for us. So thirdly and lastly in Judges, we see the desperate need for God's king, the desperate need for God's king. Let's pick up the action in chapter 21, verse 1. It seems that back, way back in their war council, the men of Israel had taken an oath to not give any girls in marriage to any Benjaminites. Remember, they didn't like the Benjaminites. And now, verse 3, they seem a bit upset that actually they've realized that that was a pretty stupid thing to do. Before long, an entire tribe of Israel will cease to exist. And 
it's just so ridiculous that they sort of cry out, hoping that God will hear them at this point. Why has this happened, God? Well, you did it. It's so much easier, isn't it, to blame God for the wrong in our life than to admit we've caused it. But then they come up with what they think is a cunning plan. It turns out, verse 5, that they'd made another oath, saying that if you didn't turn up to this assembly, then you were going to be put to death. So maybe this no-show oath can be the answer to their no-giving-wives-to-the-Benjaminites oath. Again, this is classic doing what was right in their own eyes from Israel. They're making it up as they go along, and with horrific consequences. So verse 12, they try and resolve the wife problem by slaughtering the men and married women of Jabesh-Gilead. They think that's going to do it. But they have a little head count, and the net gain of unmarried women is still not enough to go around. So they arrange, verse 20, for Benjamin to steal some girls and run off with them at a festival while they're dancing. Now, they see the beauty of this as, verse 22, because these girls have not been forcibly abducted, their fathers won't have broken any oath, as it says, since you did not give your daughters to them. So at the end of the day, everyone can shrug their shoulders and say, oh, well, hard lines, that's life. At least we didn't break the oath. We're good oath keepers, we are. So verse 23, that's what the Benjaminites did. The next verse, they all return home, everyone to their own inheritance. Everyone, that is, apart from the unmarried women of Jabesh Gilead and Shiloh. What a mess. The total sinfulness from chapter 19 is alive and well. Double standards everywhere. We'll sort out anyone who refuses to fight. But if you've got a complaint that your daughter or sister has been kidnapped as a result of one of our policies, well, we're not going to listen to that. And we're left with verse 25 ringing in our ears. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Judges here just shows us how desperately God's people here and all people since desperately need a righteous king. We need a righteous king. We need somebody like Israel did who will lead well, who will maintain law and order and justice, who will allow us to be led by God himself. But we can only really grasp how desperately we need this king if we first realize that By nature, we are sinful rebels against the God of the universe. That everything we do is corrupted by our sin. And also that we grasp that we can do nothing to solve that predicament that we're in. No religious observance or oath-taking or military planning or strategy or political vision can solve a problem that has its roots in the human heart. We are the problem. We cannot be the solution. We need God to give us a a king, a deliverer. But as we reach the end of Judges here, we're we're left wondering whether even a, a human king will ever be enough. In fact, if we carried on reading the next few books in the Bible all about the kings of Israel, we'd be left with similar questions. We do need a king, but we need one greater than any human king one that can perform a greater deliverance for us. See, left to our own devices, we do not seek after God. So we need a king who will come looking for us. We are not able to choose him. He will need to choose us. And as the total sinners that we are, we are not going to be able to contribute anything to our rescue, to our salvation. We just make things worse. We are the problem. This king will have to do it all himself. And the whole message of the Bible is crafted to ultimately say, Jesus is that very king that you and I and all of humanity need. He is the one who perfectly embodies the grace of God to us. He is fully human like us, able to identify with us, to represent us. But he is fully divine, fully God. And so in his life on this earth, unlike Israel, he always did what was right in God's eyes. And in his death on the cross, in the shedding of his blood, he offered himself once for all. 
a sacrifice for sinners, making peace between rebels and God through his shed blood. He paid the penalty that we deserve for our sin. And so here at Christ Church, Jesus Christ is our king. That's what we believe. God has exalted him to the highest place and we worship him as Lord to the glory of God the Father. If Jesus is your king today, doesn't this passage make you even more grateful for him? Even more thankful for the grace of God? Yes, even more aware of our own sin and double standards, but even more amazed that the the great king of all history would love you and give himself for you. If you're with us and you know that Jesus is not your king, can you see how your, your living life, deciding for yourself what, what's right and wrong in your own eyes? If you can see that, let me ask you, how's that going for you? What do you make of this passage? Is it convinced you that Ultimately, you can't be the hero in your life story. You can't save yourself from the pride, the, the selfishness that you know, if you're honest, is, is at the center of your decision-making and heart and life. If you do know those things, then come to Jesus. Confess your sin to him. Admit that you need him to save you and live with him as king. It's a horrible passage, a horrible end to this stage in Israel's history, but it's a simple message, really. We are sinners, completely and totally, but God doesn't abandon us in our sin. He sends us the king we desperately need, his own son, Jesus. So come to him, believe in him, trust in him. Find new life, forgiveness, inheritance that's greater than a land flowing with milk and honey, a home with God that sin can no longer corrupt, an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. Amen. Father, we cry to you afresh as our only Savior, our only God, the one who can do something and has done something about the plight of our sin. Lord, we admit afresh that we are Rebels, that every part of us has been tainted by sin in some way, that we can't save ourselves, that we need your King Jesus. And Lord, what wonderful grace you show us that we can receive him, and we we have received him. Thank you for opening our eyes to him, and pray that we would delight afresh in all that he has done for us, for we pray in his powerful name. Amen.